Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Good. It's good to be with you this morning. It's great to have the kids and the middle schoolers and the high schoolers with me today. That just makes me feel a lot more comfortable and at home because I'm a kid at heart. And I like to have a little fun. So I hope that you guys will enjoy uh, being in the service with us this morning. And I want you guys to imagine me as a 19-year-old, long hair, this is in the 90s, flannel shirt, baggy jeans, and I am on top of the world. I have just scored a beautiful girlfriend. I have just earned a scholarship to play college tennis. I have just gotten my first job in youth ministry, and I am walking across the quad at Wingate University to my systematic theology class, thinking some really big thoughts. And our professor had given us the assignment to read, to research, and to reflect on the problem of suffering. And so I walk into this classroom as this 19-year-old who's on top of the world, who's figured it all out, and I put my hand up in that class, and I tell the professor, I've done it. I've figured out the problem of suffering. <laughs> now, for you, those of you who may not be familiar what, with what I mean, this, this problem of suffering is, is a question that has been asked for thousands of years by theologians, by scholars, by pastors, and by everyday people just like you and me. And the, the line of thinking runs something like this. If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, then how can suffering exist in this world? And maybe you've found yourself thinking through that at different points in your journey. Because if God was all-powerful, then he could remove all suffering. And if God was all loving, then he would remove all suffering. So if suffering exists, then somehow that must mean that God is not all powerful or all loving. And so here I am. I'm this 19-year-old kid who's raising his hand saying, I've figured it out. I've solved the problem of suffering. And do you want to know what I said? I don't remember. <laughs> I literally don't remember. What I do remember was the look of bewildered disappointment of my professor as he saw this 19-year-old kid trying to say he had figured out this age-old problem. And so I want to recognize this morning that we live in a world where oftentimes we try to take things that are very complex and we give them simplistic or superficial answers, like that 19-year-old kid in college. And there are times that we take things that are very simple and we make them utterly complex. Now, the question of suffering, the reality of suffering, is something that is complex, and so I want us to be careful this morning as we dive into this scripture that we don't 
try to slap some superficial, simplistic answers to the deep and difficult challenges that we face in this world. You know, as I've walked through several things over these last couple years, saying things like, he's in a better place, let go and let God, or perhaps the verse that we're going to be looking at for a few minutes this morning, God works all things together for the good. Many times those kind of statements do more harm than they give help. So I want to just acknowledge today that we live in a dark world. There are times when I look at what's happening in our schools, what's happening with our kids, what's happening in politics, what's happening in our culture, in our nation, and I go, darkness is winning. Pain, evil, war, suffering. Are we too far gone? Are we too perverse? Are we too lost for God to redeem us? But then I remember, we've got Jesus. Jesus is still the light of the world. Jesus is still the hope of glory. Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than the name of Jesus. And anyone who calls, I was reminded as I was preparing this morning of the, the opening words of the gospel of John. We think about this darkness that feels like it's closing in on us and it, it, it feels like it's overcoming our culture, our world. But listen to what John says. And remember that when he uses the word, he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning, the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. Now hold on to this, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from a human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Robin talked about this beautiful image that we have of God being our heavenly Father, that we call out to him, Abba. And that's where Pastor Paul left us off last week as we were continuing through this series in Romans good news for the road ahead. He talked about how at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, it reminds us that we are not condemned. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now children of God. And I want to I go back to the last couple verses of what Pastor Paul preached through to give us a launching point to think through what God wants us to dwell on this morning. 
So going back again to verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Amen? We're no longer slaves to sin anymore. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, which is daddy. We call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are the heirs of God's glory. And it would be so wonderful today if we could just stop the sermon right there, stop the reading of the verse right there, and not read the rest of the scripture. But we can't do that. And here at Soma, we don't skip the hard stuff. We don't pick and edit the verses that we like and don't like. We keep reading because all of God's word has truth for us today. And so we continue and we read these words. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Following Jesus requires that we share both his suffering and his glory. The Bible makes it very clear that the life of a Christian is not one devoid of suffering. Coming to Jesus does not mean that you will never suffer again. The Bible doesn't skirt the subject of suffering. It invites us into it to think deep, complex, difficult thoughts. And as we do, to to lean in with Christ because he is leaning in with us. And so I want us to talk for a few minutes this morning about the weight of suffering and the weight of glory. And we're going to continue in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Keep reading with me. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for this day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Now, as you read this passage, you can cut the tension in this passage with a knife. We see suffering and glory, waiting 
and revealing the curse of sin and death and the freedom from death and decay, groaning in pain and celebrating in joy, the promise of hope and the realization of the promise. But throughout it all, we see something that is abundantly clear, that suffering is inevitable. There's no escape. Suffering is inevitable. And you can either suffer with Jesus or you can suffer without Jesus. You can suffer with the peace that passes all understanding or you can suffer without that peace. You can suffer with the hope of glory or you can suffer without it. You can suffer in a way in which your pain has purpose and your suffering has significance or you can suffer in a way that it all is meaningless. The choice is up to you. But suffering is inevitable. Now, let me make it clear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that, number one, we should dismiss or diminish our present suffering. Our God is a compassionate God. God never says, get over it. God never says, it's not that bad. God never says, hey, Nick, you just need to man up. Just, just be tougher, Nick. That's all we need from you. God doesn't say, big girls don't cry. Stop, stop your babbling, your babying. No, God is a compassionate, compassionate God. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is a hard message for me to preach because over the years, my wife has called me a certain name. There's probably a few others that I could mention, but the one I'm going to mention this, this morning is she's, there's many times over the years where she said to me, Warren, I don't get you. How many of you have heard that from someone before? I just don't get you. She said, Warren, I don't get you. You're not human. You are a cyborg. You don't seem to have any ability to process emotions. And the truth is, is that that is very reflective of who I am. In fact, when I was a kid, I I played a lot of competitive tennis. And uh, my parents would tell me that when they would come to my tournaments, if the little scorecards weren't out there, they would come and they would watch me. And they couldn't figure out if I was winning or losing based on my demeanor. My mom used to, used to use the word stoic. You're so stoic, I can't figure out whether you're happy or sad. But can I tell you something? I've read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and there are no cyborgs in the Bible. And as I look at the gospel, I don't see Jesus dying for cyborgs. Jesus died for humans. And so when I push away, and when I diminish, and when I dismiss my humanity, those emotions that are difficult for me, those things that are hard for me to process, I'm actually rejecting the very gospel that I've been called to receive and to proclaim. Being able to dismiss and, and, and diminish emotions and suffering 
is not a sign of spiritual maturity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The secret is not in our minimizing our present suffering. The secret is in magnifying our future glory. It's not about looking at our situation and the suffering that we're in right now and saying, it's not as bad as you think. It's about looking at that future glory and saying, it's better than you ever imagined. This is the invitation that Paul gives us, not to, number one, dismiss or diminish our present suffering. And number two, he's not saying that God cannot help us in our present suffering. In fact, one of the verses that has spoken so powerfully to me over the last few months is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. I want to read it for you this morning. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given to us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and your salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. God comforts us in spiritual, mystical, and practical ways. God gives us his word to to comfort us in times of hardship. God gives us the body of Christ. God gives us messages and sermons. God gives us those times when we go on those prayer walks and we just listen to the Lord. Those are spiritual ways, but God also can comfort us in mystical ways. There are times where you might find that God gives you a vision, that God gives you a dream, that God does something that is so bizarre and outlandish that you go, this doesn't make sense other than the fact that God is stepping in in this very moment to let me know that he is with me. But the way that God most often brings his comfort into our lives is through one another. You know, I was thinking about this unique story that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 10, where he talks about how those who welcome the prophet will receive the rewards of the prophet. And those who show hospitality to the righteous will receive the rewards of the righteous. And then he says, for those of you who give a cup of cold water in my name to my disciples— you will receive a reward in heaven. And I think about this because I think so many times when we find ourselves in a situation where somebody that we know is going through a season of suffering, somebody that we know is walking through a personal tragedy, or maybe they're, they're dealing with a, a type of depression that is just so overwhelming, and we find ourselves thinking, I don't know what to say to help them. I don't know what to do to make things better for them. And what Jesus reminds us in that is that you may not have the 
words of the prophet. You may not even know what to do like the righteous, but we can all give that cold cup of water to, to, to one another in Jesus' name. And that might be simply bringing somebody a cup of coffee, bringing them a meal, sending them a text of encouragement. It might be coming over to their house and washing their dishes for them, vacuuming their floor. There are so many ways that we can bless one another, and we get to do that. That's what this whole body is here. In fact, the word soma means body. We get to serve and love one another in that way because when we are comforted, we can then comfort others. And when we need that comfort, the body of Christ brings those people around us. I heard this quote from a friend of mine named Daniel Halleck the other day. And he says, when you give more than you get, you get more than you give. And that only works in the context of the body. That the more that we give and serve and love and comfort one another, God brings that love and that service and that comfort back to us. That's what God has invited us through the body of Christ. So God can help us in our present suffering. But suffering is real because sin is real. But hope is real because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. I remember learning in seminary about this thing called the already but not yet kingdom. That when Jesus came, he ushered in his kingdom. And it's already here among us, but it is not yet fully realized. And I think that's what Paul had in mind when he describes here how the world is like a woman suffering in labor. Now, I've never met a woman who said, I decided to get pregnant so I could experience the pain of labor. Have, uh, maybe, has anybody else heard that? No, I don't think so. Why would anybody submit themselves to that kind of pain for, for no reason? They wouldn't. The labor is a necessary part of the process to bring a beautiful new life into this world. And so I thought it would be kind of fun and maybe interesting to Google, what are some common things that women say during labor? (laughs) I've got the PG version here. So, (laughs) but think about What these women say in labor, many of you said it, probably said these things as well, but how it relates to this verse, that our world is in many ways in labor right now, waiting for that future glory. Listen to what women commonly say during labor. I can't do this anymore. When is this going to be over? Don't touch me. I am hot. I am cold. I don't know what I want to do. It feels like I have to poop. That was interesting. Baby's coming. And oftentimes, nothing at all. But perhaps the most common thing that women say during labor is not an intelligible word at all. It's simply groaning. It's simply just letting out a cry 
to recognize that they are experiencing a pain that they can't put into words. And as we think about that, I want, us to, I want to invite you to, to reflect on this next passage of Scripture that we're going to read that reminds us that while we groan, God works. This is the verse that, that Shannon's been taking us through over and over each week, and I'm so glad that I get to, to talk about it for just a few minutes. So while we, we groan, God works, Romans 8, 26 to 28, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows our hearts, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. If you've been in church for more than a few minutes, you know that Christians are supposed to pray. The disciples, they asked Jesus, we don't know what to pray. Teach us how to pray. And the Lord gave them what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And I remember hearing that over and over and over as a kid so that it's etched in my mind. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And I could preach a sermon on that prayer. But this is not that sermon. And this is not that prayer. Because there are times in our lives when we are so distressed We are so depressed, we are so confused, we are so depleted, we are so wounded, we cannot even form words to express what our souls are looking for, or longing for. There are times when we are at a total loss. We are fed up, we're spent, and we're ready to quit. And groaning is a guttural physical response to what we are feeling inside, which we cannot put into words. And I have to admit, there have been Sundays, recently, very recently, where I've come into church and my inward spirit was just so heavy, so struggling, that what I really wanted to do was just lay on the floor in the fetal position and cry. And perhaps you've felt that way before as well. And God is so good. He welcomes us in that way. He reminds us that we are still his children. And the Holy Spirit does this amazing, maybe even magical thing where he takes our groans And he transforms them into prayers. 
He puts, the Holy Spirit puts words to the things that we cannot express. And I'm going to tell you guys an embarrassing story. When I was a little kid, when I was born, uh, my aunt made a blanket for me. And uh, this was a pink blanket. I don't know why she gave a pink blanket to a little boy, but she did. And uh, over the years, this pink blanket would be in my room. And whenever I was feeling emotions that I didn't know how to process, I was upset, I was angry, I was sad, I was lonely, I was afraid, I would go under the blanket and I would hide under it. In fact, it became known as my Heidi blanket. Not the name Heidi, but just the action of hiding underneath it. And after years and years and years, it became tattered and torn and had holes in it. And so one day when I was in sixth grade, I came home to discover that my mom had thrown out my Heidi blanket. Now, I'll let you guys discuss over lunch whether or not that was a good idea. But she felt like it was about time for me entering into uh, teenage life to not have a pink hole-ridden blanket that I called my Heidi blanket. And uh, a few weeks ago, Leah asked me, she said, how are you doing? And I said, I really wish I had my Heidi blanket. And here's the beauty is that God is our Heidi blanket. God is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is our safe place that we can run to even in the midst of our suffering. And we cannot... uh, We cannot always know what to say or how to say it, but God takes those groans and he transforms them into prayer. Our Father is a heart reader and he is fluent in the groans of his children. So now we step into this often misquoted and misused verse. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And I want to think back to the problem of suffering because God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. Suffering is real. And somehow, God is good. See, the problem of suffering is not God. The problem of suffering is me. Now, I have to admit, I don't usually refer to Taylor Swift quotes or lyrics whenever I'm making deep theological statements. But this one really resonated me from the song Antihero. She said, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And she's right. The reason why the problem of suffering is a problem for us is because we are finite human beings. I am stuck right here in this place and in this time, and I could do nothing to be in another place or another time at any point than right now. But we serve a God who is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. 
We serve a God who is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. We serve a God who is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere, all at the same time. And on top of that, God is above time. God is not stuck in my timeline. God is not stuck in your timeline. God is above time and God is in time all at the same time. And because of that, God has a perspective that you and I can never have because he is eternal and he is unstoppable. So God is not the problem. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. God is good, but let me make one more thing clear. Not everything that happens in this life to you or to me is good. Not everything that happens is good. We don't need to use mental gymnastics to try to convince ourselves that the tragedy that we're going through, the pain that we're going through is good. We don't have to find the silver lining in every that cloud. Remember, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't try to rationalize. He didn't try to convince everybody that it was a good thing. He wept. Many of you may have uh, become aware over these last few months of a, a national ad campaign called He Gets Us. How many of you saw their commercial in the Super Bowl? It's a beautiful picture of the humanity of Jesus. It reminds us that Jesus understands what we are going through. He's experienced everything that we might experience. And this ad campaign is doing a tremendous job of helping to introduce the humanity of Jesus. It's up to us to introduce the divinity of Jesus. As a man... Jesus wept, but as God, Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. Many of you may remember a few years ago I gave a sermon called God Gets You and God's Got You. And it's not enough to have a God who can empathize with our suffering. We need a God who can take our sin we need a God who can take our suffering, who can take our pain and take our problems and work it all together for his good, according to his plan, according to his will, and according to his purposes for our lives. So even when we don't see it all or understand it all, we cling to the hope that one day our suffering will become glory. And while we groan, God is still working. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Paul usually gives his implications. I'm going to give an invitation. And I want us to look back at one verse as we conclude this time together and as the band begins to play. Verse 24 says this, we were given this hope when we were saved. We were given this hope when we were saved. And I've got two questions I want us to reflect upon as we 
bring this time together to an end. And the first question is this. If you do not have this hope, have you been saved? Generation Z, the millennial generation, basically anyone under the age of about 42, the studies are showing that this is the most depressed, lonely, isolated, struggling generation in the history of the world. It shouldn't be a surprise then to also learn that these two generations are twice as likely to be atheist than their parents. According to the Barner Research Studies, only 4% of Gen Z students have a biblical worldview. So if you have people around you that are hopeless, or if right now you're struggling and you feel like you're hopeless, I just want to ask the question, have you been saved? We cannot save ourselves. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not a question of, do you go to church? Going to church doesn't make you saved. It doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Just like going to McDonald's doesn't make me a Big Mac. You might say, well, my parents are Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. That doesn't mean that you're saved. The question is, have you trusted your life to Jesus? Have you surrendered to him? Have you said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to give the rest of my life to walking in the footsteps of Jesus. If you don't have this hope, have you been saved? And then maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, Warren, I know I have been saved, but I still do not feel this hope that you're talking about. The question is, if I have been saved, why don't I have this hope? And I would just give you two things to think about. Number one, go back. Go back to the moment of your salvation. Remember that time when you surrendered your life to Christ and Jesus came in and he filled you with his Holy Spirit. And ask God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. I think the problem for many of us today is that we are skimming our walk with Christ. I thought about the the woman who met Jesus at the well. She was hopeless and helpless. And Jesus looked at her and he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for the living water. And just like a well, if you only take that bucket and drop it three inches into the well and pull it back up, you're not going to get anything out of it. You've got to go deeper. And the problem is too many of us are just skimming in our relationship with the Lord. We're not going deep enough. 
We're not spending significant amounts of time in prayer. We're not spending significant amounts of time in devotion. We're not spending time meditating and memorizing God's word. We're not spending that time really committing to walking with the body of Christ. And then we look at our bucket and it's empty and we say, why don't I have any hope? Go deeper with the Lord than you've ever gone before. And secondly, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You remember that story of Peter? He believes Jesus. He gets out of the boat and he's walking towards Jesus. He's walking on top of the water and his eyes are locked on his Savior. But then the wind and the waves begin to rise up and he starts to look at his surroundings. He starts to to feel the waves. He starts to, to feel the wind and he looks down and he takes his eyes off of Jesus and immediately he sinks And he starts to drown and he's crying out to the Lord and he says to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down into the water and pulled him back up and together they walked back to the boat. For many people, when you take your eyes off of Jesus, it can feel like you were drowning exactly the same way you were before you came to Christ. And those three words might be the most powerful words that you can say today. Lord, save me. I want to put my eyes back on Jesus. I want to take my eyes off of the problems, the wind and the waves, and I'm putting my eyes back on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of of his glory and grace. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to have an opportunity to give an offering to help the mission move forward. I want to invite you to do that. We're going to have an opportunity to come forward and to take the elements, the bread, which reminds us that Christ's body was broken so that we could be made whole. And the wine and the juice, which reminds us that Christ's blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. I invite you to to participate in that way. But I also want to take a moment to ask, have you been saved? There might be some kids in the room today that have never really taken that step. There might be some some middle schoolers and some high schoolers in the room today that have not ever taken that step. There might be some adults who are new to the church or have been in church for their whole life. Or they haven't been back in a long time, but they've come back now and they've never taken that step. I just want to invite you right now, if you are ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Will you pray this simple prayer with me in your heart to the Lord? Heavenly Father, I accept the gift that Jesus has offered me. I turn from my sin and I believe that Jesus' death and his resurrection are all that I need to be forgiven 
to be restored and to be adopted into your heavenly family. Save me, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. With every head bowed, every eye closed for just a few minutes longer. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you just hold up your hand so that I can pray for you and encourage you? Okay, I see that hand. Anyone else? If you prayed that prayer to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, hold that hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Perhaps you're here today, this morning, and you're saying, Warren, I know I'm saved, but I've not been going deep enough with Jesus. I've been skimming spiritually. I've taken my eyes off of Christ and I feel like I'm drowning right now. If that's where you're at, would you just hold up your hand? I see that hand. Thank you. I'm drowning. I've just been skimming along. Thank you. I want to pray for you today. Father God, thank you for loving us and forgiving us even when We find ourselves just going through the motions. Even when we find ourselves sinking because we've taken our eyes off of you. Lord God, you are always there to hold out your hand and to bring us back. So Lord God, for those that raised their hand just a moment ago, Lord, I pray that the cry of their heart would be the same of Peter as he was drowning in the water. Lord, save me. And Lord, I pray that they would turn their eyes on Jesus and experience the same help and the same hope that Jesus offered to Peter in that moment. Lord God, as we conclude this time, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship, with joy, Lord God, as we sing these songs and we remind ourselves of the assurance that we have, Lord God, that in Christ we are adopted, we are saved, and we are expectant of that future glory that you promised us in this passage. So Lord God, while we groan, we know that you work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.